Callaway introduced the Apex irons, they created the player's distance iron category. Now they're redefining it with the Apex 21, the first forged irons designed with artificial intelligence. Apex's classic forged craftsmanship is paired with futuristic AI for a combination of tour feel, incredible distance, and shot making control. In 21, there's an Apex for everyone with the Apex, the Apex Pro, and the new forgiving Apex DCB. Toronto made headlines recently when its city council announced it would change the name of Dundas Street, which cuts through the heart of the city because of its namesake Henry Dundas's connection to slavery. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Patrick Scanlon, a professor of industrial relations at the University of Toronto, whose new book, Slave Empire, takes a look at some of the ways in which slave labor shaped the British Empire and Canada's economy. Scanlon emphasized that in the 18th and 19th century, this country's economy as part of the British Empire was tied into and benefited from the slave economy. It's a wide-ranging interview on a sensitive topic, but it's especially relevant today as we reconsider the legacy of people such as Henry Dundas. As always, it's edited for clarity and brevity. Hi, Patrick. Thank you for joining me. Thanks very much for having me. So Toronto made headlines recently for announcing it would change the name of Dundas Street. Who was Henry Dundas? And why is having his name attached to a major street offensive to many people? Right. So so Henry Dundas is one of the most important figures in British political history in the latter part of the 18th century and the very beginning of the 19th century. Um, so Dundas was a Scottish politician from a distinguished gentry family, and he was generally part of a generation of very ambitious Scots uh, who were born just after the, the sort of last major Scottish rebellion against English rule, the Jacobite Rebellion, 1745. So Dundas was born into a political climate where being Scots or being Irish was looked at with suspicion in, in England. And so for many, especially kind of well-educated Scots and, and sort of upper middle classes in Scotland, the empire became a way of making their fortune. And, and Dundas is best known as the sort of closest political associate of one of the most important prime ministers of the 18th century, William Pitt the Younger. Um, so Dundas served in Pitt's government both as Home Secretary and as Colonial Secretary. That's why Dundas Street is named after him in Toronto. He was Colonial Secretary from 1794 to 1801 at the time when the street was being mapped out in, in Toronto, right? And he was he was interested above all in maintaining British trade, and he was convinced that the only way to secure Britain's imperial power was to protect its trade. And so when motions came up in Parliament in, in 1792 to abolish the British slave trade, Dundas, at the last minute, right before the motion was voted on, introduced an amendment changing the motion from an, a, a motion proposing the immediate abolition of the British slave trade to one proposing gradual abolition. And so I, I think it's a pretty well-established consensus among historians that Dundas's move delayed the eventual abolition of the slave trade and also kind of undermined the movement to end the slave trade in, in, in Britain. So what was the ultimate result of that? It's important to understand where the parliamentary movement against the slave trade came from. So Dundas was the man who William Pitt would turn to when he needed something done, right? He was sort of like Pitt's fixer. And Pitt himself was somebody who was well known for making anti-slavery or at least anti-slave trade 
pronouncements in parliament, but at the same time doing very little to actually advance the movement to to, to abolish the slave trade. So the, the movement in parliament was led by William Wilberforce, who was an MP. And so the, the first kind of important question to ask is why Wilberforce was interested in abolishing the slave trade rather than in actually ending colonial slavery, right? So because they're two very different aspects of, of British imperial commerce. That's one of the reasons why the slave trade came first, right? It was something that could be regulated entirely from within Britain. Britain could simply say, you can no longer carry enslaved people to and from British ports and any British ship found doing so can be seized, right? So it was a, a kind of national regulation. And the second reason was that even Wilberforce himself was committed to a principle of very, very gradual emancipation. Wilberforce had a vision that it would take generations for enslaved people to be kind of gradually taught how to behave as free people after emancipation. So even among sort of elite British abolitionists, there was a lot of support for gradualism. What Dundas did, you know, he, he didn't insert gradualism for the first time into the British anti-slavery movement, but he interrupted and delayed a really important motion in the progress of abolishing the British slave trade in, in a way that was kind of characteristic of his approach to government, which was to preserve trade at all costs and to maintain a kind of very firm hold over imperial and national commercial management. You know, he's certainly not the only leading British politician of the late 18th century who was suspicious of emancipation who was hostile to enslaved people. But he does represent a kind of extremely cynical, extremely exploitative attitude towards the British Empire and its purposes. And so if we're changing the name of Dundas Street in a way, we need to think of it not only as a kind of uh, repudiation of an historical wrong related to slavery, but also a repudiation of imperialism, because that's really what, what, what Dundas represented. Okay. Just one point. Maybe you can clarify that one of the effects of that was that it really did delay the abolition of the slave trade. And during that time, there were a lot of people that wound up being enslaved. So Dundas was thinking as a true kind of cynical imperial manager. So this was a time when, from Dundas's perspective, right, the, the productivity of Britain's colonies that relied on enslaved labor to produce cash crops for the world market was something that needed to be preserved at all costs. And moreover, that presented an opportunity for Britain to kind of outcompete the French empire. So in a sense, the transatlantic slave trade accelerated in the period of the revolutionary and Napoleonic wars, this period between when Wilberforce's motion was amended by Dundas in 1792 and when Britain actually finally did pass a law abolishing the slave trade in 1807. So a, a really large number of enslaved people made the passage across the Atlantic from West Africa to the Americas as a result of this motion to delay the, the, the abolition of the slave trade. When people think about Canadian history, the, the first thing that comes to mind is probably not enslavement of African people, but the history of our economy as is intertwined with the slave economy. I was wondering if you can maybe give some examples. I, I mean, sure. I think the most important thing to remember about pre-Confederation colonial Canada's place in the British Empire is that in the 18th century, for British imperial managers, for people looking out at the British Empire, the most valuable and significant commercial colonies were the sugar-producing colonies of the Caribbean. 
So these were colonies where the overwhelming majority of enslaved people carried by British ships were forcibly repatriated into the colonies of the Caribbean, were largely compelled to produce sugar, right? So enslaved labor producing sugar was the kind of core cash crop of the 18th century British economy. And when you think about the British Empire of the 18th century and the colonies that became Canada's place in it, they orbited, in a sense, around the Caribbean. So a place like Newfoundland, famous for producing cod, was a staple food that plantation managers would give as rations to enslaved people. It wasn't the only market for salt cod, but it was one of them. In the same way, right, the trade up and down the Atlantic littoral was oriented around, at least at first, the, the colonies of the Caribbean with, with raw material, especially timber for fuel to produce sugar, because sugar is enormously labor and, and fuel intensive to produce, largely because sugar canes start to spoil um, within about 12 hours of being cut. And that would consume a huge quantity of fuel and, and also, you know, a kind of uncountable number of, of human lives. It was an extremely dangerous work. And so the economy of, of Britain's Atlantic world, including Canada, was oriented around bolstering and protecting the Caribbean economy. Uh, you know, a, a very important effect of the of the reckoning over Henry Dundas has been a reminder for Canadians that Canada's history is, for centuries, British imperial history. Canada also served as a destination for some enslaved people on the Underground Railroad. And it seems to me these two parts of our history are in some ways in tension with one another. Look, in, enslaved people lived in Canada until the final abolition of colonial slavery, at least in, in Britain's Atlantic colonies in, in 1833. But, you know, I, I mean, at least in, in imperial political economy in the 18th and 19th centuries, mass enslavement tended to be a mode of labor coercion in places where plantation crops that could be grown in intensive monocultures and then sold on global markets could be grown. So in the Caribbean, it was sugar. In the American South, it was cotton. In uh, places like Cuba and Brazil, it was crops like cotton, like to, to, to a lesser extent later rubber, plantation crops, right? And so there was slavery in Canada. There were enslaved people in Canada in, in significant numbers. But Canada was never a slave society in the same way that the plantation economies of the subtropics and the tropics were societies where the major mode of producing commodities for the world market was mass enslavement uh, of, of, of people of, of, of African descent. Um, Upper Canada was one of the first British colonies to have a anti-slavery law, right? So John Graves Simcoe, who was the lieutenant governor of Upper Canada, passed an act against slavery. But before we sort of celebrate Simcoe as the kind of anti-slavery counterpoint to someone like Henry Dundas. So the act against slavery legislated for the gradual abolition of slavery. It meant that no enslaved people could be brought into Upper Canada and, and that any enslaved people already in the province, while they would remain enslaved until they died, any of their children would be free at birth. Right. And, and, and the law was designed in order to discourage the people who claim to own enslaved people from manumitting those people. Right. So it, it was a law against slavery, but it itself exemplified this kind of pan-imperial gradualism, the sense that that I think Wilberforce shared in England, that although slavery was a kind of great moral evil, it was nonetheless something that couldn't be wound down without a long period of education. And one of the points that I, I'm, I'm especially interested in, in kind of emphasizing and thinking about the history of slavery and anti-slavery in the British Empire is the relationship between elite 
anti-slavery in Britain and Britain's colonies and the doctrine of civilization in the 19th century, because I, I think you can draw a kind of straight line between the ideas of someone like Wilberforce that you couldn't abolish slavery without first educating enslaved people in the disciplines of the market and the projects of 19th century British settlers in, in the settler colonies and of 19th century Britons in, in, in Britain proper uh, to kind of civilize and transform the ways of life of colonized people, but also of the British poor, uh, the Irish, right? Like it was a kind of pan-imperial project of civilization and cultural transformation. And this may segue into a discussion of the larger argument in your book that Britain eventually banned the slave trade and many people here in Canada commemorate the dates of some of the key laws passed on August 1st. But the emancipation of slaves doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as freedom. Britain abolishes colonial slavery in 1833, and the law comes into effect on the 1st of August, 1834. A series of, of rebellions in Barbados in 1816, in the colonies that became British Guyana in 1823, and then in Jamaica over Christmas and New Year's of 1831 and 1832. Like These three rebellions put emancipation on the parliamentary agenda in London. But what the leaders of those rebellions are fighting for is not at all what they receive in the Emancipation Act of, of 1833. The pillar, the kind of two core principles of the Emancipation Act are, first of all, compensation for the people who had once claimed to own enslaved people, right? So there's a, a, a fund of 20 million pounds. It was equivalent to roughly 40% of Britain's annual budget in, in 1834, and it was raised by the Treasury with tenders that were floated on and loan markets. And the other part of compensation was a period called apprenticeship in the Caribbean. And it was a period of four years of continued unpaid work for people who did not work on plantations. Uh, and then a period of six years of further forced labor for people who had worked in sugarcane fields. Um, so for about 40 hours a week, a formerly enslaved person who had worked in a sugarcane field would be required to do the exact same work they had done while they had been enslaved on the same plantation where they had been enslaved and still without wages. But for the rest of their working time, that was their, their free time in the language of the law, they would be expected to sell their labor. So the idea was it was an apprenticeship to teach enslaved people uh, or rather freed people how to be wage laborers and preserve the imperial sugar industry despite the end of mass enslavement. And the other part of the law was the introduction of really rigid labor regulation of formerly enslaved laborers, now now freed laborers. You know, it was it was it was a law that was designed to end mass enslavement, but also preserve the imperial sugar industry and also continue to exert substantial economic, political and moral coercion over freed people despite their emancipation. It really looked very little like what the leaders of, of, of rebellions had, had fought for, right? They were fighting for land ownership, for economic independence, for political independence, for cultural autonomy, like the right in, in a sense to just be like left alone and, and, and allowed to choose their own destiny. And they absolutely did not receive that. And where they did receive it, it was in defiance of the law rather than because of it. This is obviously a really painful and unsettling chapter in Canadian history and other countries' histories. If Canada's economy historically has benefited from the proceeds of the slave trade, what do you think as a historian it means for the present? So, you know, I think there, there are two ways of looking at the legacies of enslavement and of enslaved labor in, in Canadian history, uh, especially Canadian economic history. 
And one way which draws on what has happened with the legacy of Henry Dundas is to take a closer look at investments in slavery and the slave trade made by prominent settler Canadians in the course of, 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 of the 18th and 19th centuries. And, and, and this isn't meant to kind of dig up individual people and sort of remove them from the historical record, right? Um, so I was, I was actually just doing some, some digging on a database called the Legacies of British Slavery, which is run by University College Dublin, which is based on the data that, was, that were collected by the British government after the compensation fund, the 20 million compensation fund was, was distributed. So you can actually see who claimed what amount of money and in many cases how they spent it. Uh, so you can find people like uh, Mather Byers Allman, who was the governor of Dalhousie University uh, for quite a long time in the mid-19th century, um, who was the executor of an estate that included more than 500 pounds of, of value claimed in the bodies of enslaved people. You can find investments in land speculation firms like the British American Land Company, which, which invested in land in the eastern townships in what's now Quebec. Uh, or the Canadian Land Company, which invested in land uh, in, in southern Ontario um, in the 1820s. By the 1830s, when slavery was abolished in the British Empire, the most substantial slaveholders in the British Empire were often the executors of estates, or they were banks that had, through foreclosure, had acquired the interests of plantation owners in the Caribbean who had gone bankrupt. Right. So financial institutions could claim to own enslaved people as much as individual people. So although it, it shocks our conscience, right, mass enslavement was critical to the global economy in the 18th and 19th century. And you can't parse out uh, or purify the global economy and global capitalism in that era by kind of finding who the people who claimed to own enslaved people were and kind of isolating them and thinking about them. You, you have to kind of think about the ways that the entire system relied on in, in some ways was was founded on the labor of, of of enslaved people so one of the ways to think about canada's place in this history is to understand that canada is part of this system and, and start to think about canada as part of a transnational circuit of money and and and, and power and and people yeah listen i really want to thank you for coming on the show and and talking about a really complex topic well thanks very much for having me that was Patrick Scanlon, professor of industrial relations at the University of Toronto and author of the book Slave Empire, How Slavery Built Modern Britain. That's the show for this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Bryce Hall for music and production, Yadula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven and Victoria Wells for web support. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com in any one of our five weekly newsletters covering the economy finance, energy, investing, and the workplace.